I pray that you would help us to, to believe in your promises, to trust in your character. And that in doing so, we'd be able to lay aside any, any competitors that compete for our attention, our affection. Um, thank you for your grace. It is free. It's undeserved. Uh, it's, it's sufficient to not only save us, but to transform us uh, from one image of glory to the next. And, and ultimately, your grace is sufficient to secure us in the end. That where our sin abounds, that your grace abounds all the more. So I pray that we would feel the, the full magnitude of the truth that where, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, and, and whom the Son has set free, uh, he or she is free indeed. Thank you for these, these truths. We thank you for the ability to worship you and sing to you these truths. And we pray that now as we study your word, that you help us be attentive, even as we change the time we're, we're gathering together. I pray our minds would be sharp and, and in tune with what you want to teach us this morning. We love you. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. You can grab your Bibles and uh, open up to the book of Acts. We'll be in uh, chapter 19. We're going to finish the remainder of, the, of chapter 19 tonight. Uh, there's a few Bibles in the back. If you need one, uh, you can use your phone. I'll trust you're using your phone for your Bible and not something else. But um, So recently, Haley and I had a chance to get away for our anniversary. And one of the things that, that uh, is enjoyable to do when you're in a hotel room is to be able to utilize the do not disturb thing, right? Everybody had the joy of doing that, whether it's just you want to sleep in or you don't want people to see the bed being messy. You get to put that thing on the door, and by and large, people will abide by the do not disturb sign on the doorknob. And I was thinking about this. It might seem odd as we were singing, as we're thinking about this text. Um, I think there are times where, if we're honest with ourselves, like if you look at your life, like your motives, your choices, your thoughts, your speech, friendships even, the different things that captivate your attention or your affection, you can maybe see those like doors just for a moment if you can kind of use your imagination, each one of those categories. And so maybe a question to kind of lay out at the beginning of our time tonight is like, do you have any doors in your life that you put the do not disturb sign on? Like, is there any area of your life that you just, you want to remain behind closed doors? You don't want it disturbed. Maybe particularly you don't want God to disturb it. So one of the things we're going to see in this really unique section that deals with uh, idolatry in Ephesus is we're going to see the presence of idols, and we're going to see how Jesus disturbs idols. So when Jesus is king, he disturbs idols. And so I think there's, there's a way in which we need to do the heart work of trying to determine in our own lives, do we have idols? And not only that, are we willing to have Jesus disturb those idols and take up his rightful place. And only you and the Lord ultimately know what those areas, what those doors might be. But I would submit to you, probably all of us have some measure of portions of our life that we have put up a do not disturb sign on. And I pray that tonight would in some measure kind of rattle us out of that posture and, and allow us to walk in obedience and faithfulness to God. And so as we go to chapter 19, I'm going to do just a little bit of quick review of what we covered last week. We went through verse 20 last week, and so uh, Paul is in Ephesus. He's in this unique 
a significant port city that is just replete with idolatry. And we'll talk a lot about that to, tonight because the text talks a lot about it. So we're going to see in vivid detail the, the manner of idolatry in the city of Ephesus. And so, so Paul is kind of beginning in this section his third missionary journey. If you can kind of picture once again a loop around the Mediterranean, he's kind of looping back to the city of Ephesus. And Apollos is in Corinth. And we're going to see him in that place, if you read here just for a second, in verse 21, it says, Now after these events, after he was in Ephesus, and the things we saw last week with the word of the Lord prevailing, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome, which is kind of the roadmap for his third missionary journey. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And so the, the remainder of this section finds Paul in Ephesus and tells us, describes for us in pretty significant detail what was going on in Ephesus. If you remember last week, and you've seen this, we talked about it, like Paul's pattern, because he was a Jew, is he would go into the synagogues, into the, the Jewish church, as it were. And he would, he would preach that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that they were hearing and reading and listening to. Jesus is what you're looking for. So he'd walk in, he'd preach. In many places, he would have a mix of those who would ask him to stay longer and explain more. They'd respond favorably, and many times they'd be mingled with those who rejected the message. And so there were some just like that uh, in Ephesus. There were, uh, there were some who spoke evil of the way. So in Acts 19a, just look there with me. I looked, I'm pointing to the left because it might be on your left. I don't really know. But 19.8, if you look there, uh, with me. It says that when they were in, in Ephesus, it says in 8, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and then went to this hall of Tyrannus where he was for two years. And because of his faithful preaching, the whole area of Asia Minor heard the word of God. So, um, Luke seems to connect. Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and people rejected the way. And so let me just explain a couple of things and maybe make some connections because it's going to be relevant for the rest of this section. So when Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, he, he preached that in his arrival, there was this unique kingdom. You could even say like a family of people that he was beginning those who would be underneath his kingship. Maybe a simple way to understand the kingdom of God is the place where Jesus is king. And so a king has subjects. And so in this life, Jesus inaugurated, he started his kingdom, and he has subjects. And so Paul is preaching about the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the king, you need to be his subject, repent and believe in the gospel. And so some, in response to the kingdom message, rejected what Luke calls the way. And so the way in various places could be understood to be Christianity, like the way of Christ. So as Christians, we could be called people of the way. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus himself is in a very real way, the way. So at the end of our study last week, we saw the result of God's kingdom people being submitted to his reign. I don't know if you remember that. So in this this confession in the midst of community, what happens is that as a result of kingdom people being submitted to the king in their lives, 
Look at verse 20 in chapter 19. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the main idea tonight in this text as we go on is that when Jesus is king, he's going to disturb idols. So the very next thing we see. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The very next thing that we see in verse 23 is about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So there's now this uproar that's happening in Ephesus because of Jesus. Because of the Jesus that Paul preaches, this whole city is up in arms. And there's one particular individual who isn't happy with what's going on. Let's read verses 23 through 27. It says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, or Diana, may be counted as nothing, and that she, she may be even deposed or taken down from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, so, so Demetrius, you can picture this guy in Ephesus, he's a silversmith, and his job... His profession is he makes miniature shrines of this Greek goddess Diana or Artemis, same goddess. And so he, he gets his wealth, his money from selling idols. And many other tradespeople, tradesmen are involved in the fashioning of these relics and idols. And so he pulls them all together. And so he describes a disturbance in the force, like the idolatrous Force, he's like, hey, here's the problem. You all know that we get our security and our money from selling these things, these shrines. But Paul's going around saying that any God that's made by human hands isn't a God at all. That's a problem for us. And so he brings them together to try to get some support in his evangelistic crusade for Diana. But let me just kind of Pause for a moment. I want, to, I want to give you some of the scope of what this temple was like in Ephesus because it's remarkable, like in its vastness, its size even. So the temple of Artemis, which is the Greek name for Diana, which is more the Roman name, was one of the seven wonders of the world in the first century. So people from all over the known world would come to Ephesus to worship this many-breasted goddess which is very central, like sensuality and prostitution was central to this shrine, this temple. And people would come from all around. It was built about 550 B.C. It was, it's been there for hundreds of years. It was burnt down and built again even greater. To give you the size of it, it's 400 feet by 220 feet. That's roughly around the size of our current church building and property. So if you've been there, you can see the, the size of the land that our church building sits on. It's about that size. Had 127 columns that were each 60 feet high. Like 60 feet high is really high. So if you've been, how many of you have been to the, the Lincoln Memorial? Can you picture the Lincoln 
memorial statue from like foot to head, that's 19 feet. 60 feet high. 127 columns, 60 feet high. And, and the place was constantly like dec- decorated, redecorated with artistry and sculptures and different colors because people believed that this goddess was worthy of worship. It, but it was big business, make no mistake about it. And Demetrius knew that. And so he tries to get this following. The temple was constantly a source of admiration and superstition. We talked about that a little bit last week. Remember the books that were burned last week? They were like spell books. They had a lot of value in the culture because people believed in spells. And so this was a superstitious hotbed of idolatry. So at the heart of Demetrius' concern is this assertion that gods that are made by human hands are no gods at all. And it's problematic if you get your living by making little goddesses and houses for little goddesses. And that's exactly what his life was like. I don't know if you caught it in Psalm 96 that I read earlier. As as a psalmist declares the greatness and the worthiness of God, he says all of the gods of the world are worthless idols. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Jeremiah 5.21 says, Hear this, you foolish and senseless people. The foreign gods in the land have eyes, but they, they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. So here's one of the things that I would just challenge us with for a moment. It's like we can look at idolatry and we can think of the figurines. Like we think, maybe think about the little shrines to Artemis or Diana. And we can really quickly kind of remove ourselves from like, well, I don't struggle with that. I don't have an idol in my house that I bow to or... I burn things too, or I visit, or I decorate. It's not a problem for me. So I just check out from this whole idolatry business. I don't think we get off that easy. And some of what we see in the text, I think, pushes us to a place where we have to evaluate a lot deeper the presence of idolatry. And the first layer of it is this, that disturbing idols is going to reveal to us the counterfeit sources of security that we have. So Jesus, when Jesus is king, he disturbs idols. And when idols get disturbed, what happens is is it reveals to us our counterfeit sources of security. That's what happens to Demetrius, right? His his first response is like, hold up, this can't happen. You men know that we get our wealth from this business. It's very important that Diana be maintained in her place of, of worship because we get our wealth and our business from her, right? There's a measure of security in that. Artemis was a means to get something for Demetrius and the others. Demetrius and others were concerned firstly about losing what they gained from their idol, wealth and security. Maybe we could understand it this way. I'll, I'll state it this way, just might stick a little bit better. Is that ultimately there's, there's trust that we place in the idols that we make. We trust in the idols that we make. So whatever door you can picture, whatever thing you might hold on to as untouchable in your sight or at least a desire to have it untouchable to God, there's some measure of trust that you put in that thing. Trust for stability, security, satisfaction, which we'll get to more in a moment. But disturbing idols is going to reveal counterfeit sources of security. Let me just read a few passages from the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament much in the history of Israel, it's replete with patterns of the people of God being given to idolatry, 
being confronted in it, judged because of it, turning away from those idols, turning to God, and then repeating this cycle all over again. And many of these passages are from those cycles with the Israelites in history. Isaiah 42, 17 says, They are turned back and utterly put to shame. Those who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, You are our gods. What profit, Habakkuk 2.18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Can you see them? Fashioning, molding an image. There's some measure of trust put in that image. All of them, this is Isaiah 45, all of them are put to shame and confounded or confused the makers of idols go in confusion together. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Now, I love you as a church. And I think it's real easy for us to just kind of disconnect from this. But let me just shepherd you for a minute if I can. I've been trying to do business in my own heart this week of because it's, it's difficult to try to consider the presence of idols because they seem like little figurines. But let me just try to give some layers to this that might be practical for a minute. Maybe it's the moments, maybe this for us, like idolatry is when we, when we shape, and I'm going to use these words intentionally because we see some of these words in these texts. When we shape a post on social media, looking for acceptance and affirmation, there's a pursuit of security in that. We want someone, something, some measure of affirmation to give us security about who we are, our approval from other people. So we shape a post in order to receive what is going to make us more secure. When we manipulate circumstances and relationships to give us a sense of control, we're looking for security. When we make plans without committing them to the Lord and the rise and fall of those plans determines our peace, we've now put our security in those plans and not in the Lord. Well, a hunger and thirst for affirmation will put us to shame. That's the words used in the text I just read. Constantly controlling people and circumstances will not profit us in the end. And when our plans become our God, we'll be left confused in Disheartened. So the question then becomes is where do you look for security and stability? Is there some other place besides God in your life where you're clamoring for security and stability? Is there some other person in your life that you're clamoring for security and stability from? Is there some circumstance, situation? Are you controlling relationships and Circumstances as much as you can so you can feel as in control as you can. Where are you clamoring for security? Do we look for security in Christ or in counterfeits? And just as I said before, when Jesus is king, he disturbs those idols. He is certainly never going to be content with somehow abiding in the presence of idols. He will not do it. He deserves first place in everything. That's what we see in the book of Colossians, right? He's made us by himself and for himself. He deserves first place in everything. 
He is, he's good and gracious to disturb those idols. And all those other ways will lead to anxiety, disappointment, joyless living. Why? Because lasting security isn't found in the, all the various places in this world that we clamor for security and stability. It's found in the way. We're people of the way. The, the way, the truth, and the life. We're people of the Christ. And so we firstly find our foundation, our firm footing in him. Everything else is secondary at best. And disturbing idols will reveal counterfeit sources of security. And the second thing I would submit from this text is disturbing idols will reveal counterfeit objects of worship. And I make these two distinct. So one is particularly trying to find security in things. And that can be wealth. That can be your investment portfolio. It can be that. It can be your job. It can be your family, the response of your kids, the response to your parenting, your college plans, like all those things. But also there's something deeper. Maybe you, you, you could even say higher. Because disturbing idols reveals to us counterfeit objects of worship. And it's certainly present in this story. Let's go back to the text just for a second. Let's read verse 27, then we'll read through the end of, end of the section. In 27, it says, And there's danger. This is Demetrius outlining the, the problem again. There's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, it's going to trouble our jobs, but also, he seems to make this distinct, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, and so when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, this theater of 10,000 plus, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him in. And even some of the Asiarchs, kind of municipal authorities, were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him, Paul, not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. You see how idols lead to confusion? And most of them did not know why they had come together. This is pandemonium. Like they're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they're, they're wrestling these guys into the, this big theater. And most of them don't even have any idea why they're there. They're just caught up in this idolatrous flood, but it doesn't stop there. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Okay, just pause button for a second. There's all kind of craziness in this story. So just imagine for a second, you've taken the trip to Raleigh before, likely, most of us have. Can you imagine, like, yelling for two straight hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians? Or just even, like, the energy it would take to yell that for two straight hours. Like, these people are committed to this idol. Like, the, their initial reaction is rage. And then it's confusion. 
And then they enter in to try to defend and preserve the idol. And so this guy steps forward, the town clerk, and he's the one who diffuses the whole thing, really unique. But then he talks about the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Best I can tell, legend had it that the, this wooden idol that became kind of the, the beginning of Artemis and Diana was thought to have fallen from the sky through a meteorite. It sounds insane, and it actually is. It's pretty crazy. So they believe that this artifact fell from the sky. They took it. They fashioned it into an idol, built a temple around it, and now are defending it with all of their energy. And maybe that doesn't sound so unfamiliar now. Something that comes into our lives and seems to give us some benefit, right? And so we protect it. We build something around it. We begin to pay a lot of attention to it. We talk about it a lot even. We do all we can to preserve it. And maybe we even worship it because we put it in high places. But you see all these words, like great goddess, her magnificence, the whole world in Asia worship her. Great is Artemis. About two hours, one voice, great is Artemis to the Ephesians. This is a crazy scene. And so maybe another question I'll give you. Is, is Jesus a threat to anything that's mega in your life? Like Artemis was a mega idol for the people in Ephesus and in Asia Minor. I just ponder that question. Is Jesus to you a threat to anything that's mega in your life? Do you not want him to disturb maybe this thing you fashioned into an idol? And emotions have something to do with it as well, right? So many of you know I'm a Chicago Bears fan. It's been a tough road. And my family has seen this, like Haley's concerned that watching the Bears takes years off my life. Like, I had to deal with emotions. Like, and there are moments, like to my shame, where like the Bears losing a playoff game or just getting beaten once again or not having a quarterback for the 20th year. Like, it, it took a toll on me. I would get frustrated. I'd carry it like for a day. I'd just be angry. Like, why can't they just get Brett Favre out of retirement or something? Like, but you, but you think about the emotional toll of something even as silly as football. But it's actually a really helpful litmus test of something becoming too important to us. Like, is there anything that has control over your emotions? I think it would be a really helpful first question to ask. Is like, if there's something that's on the do not disturb list, maybe one of the first questions we should ask is, does it control my emotions? Did you see the first reaction from this crowd, this mass? When they heard Demetrius describe the problem, they were enraged. Rage was their first reaction. They were angry. Their emotions took control of them, which was evidenced by the fact they just gathered up everybody, shoved these guys into the theater, and they're all yelling. Some of them don't even know why they're there, but they're committed to it even so. Like, what has control over your emotions? Is there something that has control over your joy? And your joy seems to ebb and flow, not because of Christ or his promises, but because of this thing, whatever it is. I found that to be probably one of the most helpful questions as it relates to idolatry in my own life is what has control over my emotions. Idols have a grip on our emotions. 
We were talking about this at, at the dinner table the other night, and Peyton gave us a really helpful definition of an idol. She says an idol is something we worship and something that's too important to us. It's like, amen. It's a great functioning definition. Is there anything that's too important to you in your life? Above and beyond or competing with the presence of God and his promises. Idols have a grip on your emotions. Idols will cause disorientation when they're dethroned. The assembly was in confusion. Are there any things that you scramble to preserve and keep because you see them getting out of control and you're concerned that they might not be there in the same way they are today? Do we scramble to secure things and control things? The last thing I'll say, and I'll close with this thought, just as the final flow of thought at the end of this, is that idols cannot coexist with Jesus. They cannot, they will not coexist with the way. When Jesus is king, it means all other gods are no gods at all. You think of it this way. It's like when the way walks in the room, everybody else bows to him. When, Je when Jesus is king, there's no other kings. Small K, big K. He doesn't come to compete. He comes to crush his enemies under his feet. He's not satisfied with us dabbling in the courts of other idols and trying to somehow portray that we're following him. He won't, he won't coexist with idols in our lives. Ephesians 1.22 says that everything has been put under Jesus' feet. Colossians 2.15, he disarms rulers and authorities. He, he's put them to open shame because he's the king. That's what kings do. Kings have subjects. They don't have co-kings. Jesus is no exception. When the way walks in the room, all other so-called kings bow. And so there's a, something for us we have to reckon with is that we're either going to turn away from false gods and turn toward Christ or in turning to false gods, we will turn away from Christ. Those are the only two options. If you move toward one, you move away from the other. And by God's grace... He's allowing us like, to hear from his word and see an example of what it looks like to be caught up in idolatry and maybe just for a moment to ask his spirit to probe us and examine our hearts, see if there be any competitors in our own lives. And Haley and I were talking about this this morning, you know, trying to, because we can read this story and be like, man, this is crazy. Idolatry is crazy and messy. And maybe we could even identify idols in our own lives. Maybe there's some measure like we can honestly evaluate, like this seems to be a trouble spot for me. But what do we do then? Like what do you do when you see the presence of an idol in your life? And I want to submit some things to consider because I think we see some patterns in Scripture that help us. What do we do when we recognize the presence of idols in our lives? One king in the history of Israel king of Judah was Josiah. In 2 Kings 22 through 24, you can read it. There's a pattern I'll give. You know, the first thing that Josiah did, uniquely, he sent a high priest to go, go into the temple and, and he found the word of God that had been lost. And, and so he reads the word of God to Josiah, gives it to him, and Josiah is wrecked. He's like, oh my goodness. Like, we haven't been doing any of this. Like the people of God have not been obeying the word of God. 
That's one of the first things that happens is, is he recognizes how short they have fallen from the standard of God. And I would think it's probably similar for us. We have to recognize the presence of idols and be broken. And God even commends Josiah in this way. He says, your heart was penitent. It was repentant and broken. And you humbled yourself before the Lord. You have torn your clothes and wept before me. And I also have heard you, declares the Lord. So be broken, I would say, would be the first thing. The second is be hasty. One of the things that Josiah did and a few other kings is he broke the idols. He tore down. He brought low the things that were high, that weren't God. He brought them low and he crushed them. He took them down. He took them out of the sight of the people of God. And so he he was hasty. He quickly moved to get rid of the competitors. And if you look at this story, the one we just read, like Demetrius' assessment of the situation was spot on. His concern, completely legitimate. Because the only reaction that someone can have when the way is preached that Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other is that everything that's been made high has to come down. Everything that's high has to come down under his feet. So Demetrius' concern was legitimate. It's like, this means that the gods we've been fashioning aren't gods at all. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. Because Jesus is Lord. So we have to be hasty to tear down, to take down the things we have put high. To take them from great to garbage like they are. They're no gods at all. They're worthless. All the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. They have to be taken down from their place of prominence and greatness, magnificence, and worship. So be broken, be hasty to break them and take them down. And maybe thirdly is to be restored. What we see later in Josiah's story is there's a, there's a reading and obeying of God's words. He restores the Passover. There's this picture of restoration. You might remember this when I talked several weeks ago just from Revelation 2 about what do we do when we realize we've lost our first loves. Remember from where we've fallen? We repent and then we return and do the things we did at first. And there's a picture of restoration that's synonymous here is that you go back to the Word of God. Get in the Word of God. Familiarize yourself with the promises of God. Restore in your sight the greatness of who God is. Like we read Psalm 96. It's one of my favorite psalms. Like every time I read it, there's just this, there's this work it does in my heart to give words to the greatness of God that left to myself I don't possess because I'm fallen. Allow the word of God to cultivate within you a view to the greatness and the grandeur of who God is and who Jesus is. And I think there's a restorative work that God does to, to place Jesus in his rightful place as the king. But Jesus doesn't compete with fraudulent gods. He doesn't share the stage. He takes the center of it. He doesn't merely come into your life even. He takes over your life. As we recognize the presence of idols, we need to allow him to do just that. The way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom still disturbs idols today. And there's possibly someone in this room, like maybe you recognize that Jesus has never been king in your life. Like you've given lip service to it, like you've been to church but you know he's not the one that's come and crushed every other idol in your life, subdued it under his feet. 
and you're still trying to keep things from being disturbed. And I think one of the sweetest, sweetest things we can remember tonight is that God is a God of restoration. In a moment, like a second, like God can take hard hearts and, and make them into hearts of flesh. You know that story, like your own story. Like there's a moment in time where just radically, graciously, God took your heart that used to be hard and he gave you a heart of flesh. And even now, as you are confronted with your own sin, if you're not in Christ, then the call is to, tr to trust in Jesus. Like he is the way and the truth and the life. And absolutely no one will come to the Father but through him. Trust in him today. Lay down all of your effort, all your trying, and trust in him completely for your salvation and for your transformation in this life. Empires have come and gone, and temples have been built and torn down, just like Artemis' temple. But the throne of God will never be taken down. There's only one God who wasn't made with human hands. And there's a God who will never be deposed from his magnificence because he's completely worthy within himself. He'll never fall or be taken down from his position of prominence and power. So this anthem that was raised in Ephesus, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Like we could, we could restate it, like great was Artemis of the Ephesians. She was great in some ways, but great is our God and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. That all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. His splendor and majesty are what are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. So ascribe to him, families of the people. Like ascribe to him the glory due his name. Amen. As we sing this last song, we're just going to sing a song of thanksgiving called Jesus, Thank You. And I pray that we be able to enter in with joy and let me pray for us as we seek to do just that. God, we have um, a million ways, a million reasons to give you thanks. And not the least of which is the fact that you have made us a part of your family. You have taken rebels and you've made them your children. that though our sin has abounded in our lives, um, that your grace abounds all the more. Because of your gracious work in our hearts to, to show us the glory of God in the face of Christ, that we are now those who have trusted in him by faith. And we stand secure. We stand forever forgiven and accepted in Christ. There will be one day where we will meet you face to face. And we can have the confidence we'll be fully acceptable in your sight. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of the perfection of Jesus. The wonder of his sacrifice is our substitute. And his powerful resurrection that promises even today that there will be a time where we will raise from the grave as well. That we will have a life to come. We'll be free from sin, free from idolatry, and we'll be free to worship you forever and ever as our joy, as our occupation.
And God, we, it's good for us to confess that we have, even this week, in some ways, almost certainly given, given way to things becoming great in our eyes that shouldn't be great. That we have put things in high places in order to try to obtain security from things that aren't you. And we have sought through the affection of our hearts to worship other things, to see other things as magnificent and worthy of worship. And so would you do work in us even as we sing this song, uh, even as we leave this place tonight to restore to restore you to the rightful place of worship in our lives and our hearts. And Jesus, we do say thank you. We thank you for your great humility that you're willing to come down off the throne and empty yourself, being made in the likeness of men, coming as a servant to give your own life as a ransom for your people. We love you. We thank you. We worship you. And... uh, We're grateful to be yours, grateful for life and breath and all the good things you give us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's go ahead and sing together.